If you would, uh, please turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 10, and one of the most familiar passages of Scripture, and these are always the ones you want to watch out for the most, because we've heard them since we were knee-high to a duck, and we think we know what they say, and we're a little bit, um, they tend to just brush off of us very quickly. This is, uh, we're going to see this is not the case, Uh, and it's, um, well, let's just get into it. Uh, Luke chapter 9, beginning at at verse 10, is what's called Jesus feeding the 5,000. But I want to begin with the opening of Luke, Luke chapter 1, because this sets the tone for everything he's doing, as it does with all four of the Gospels. They each come at it a little differently, but the opening of Luke, in as much, this is chapter 1, verse 1, in as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So you see what Luke is doing. Luke's an historian, and he has a friend named Theophilus, and he's going to, uh, to recount all that he has done in order that the people who read it may have certainty about the things Uh, that he is speaking. And now if we jump back to chapter 9 of Luke, the very last uh, verse from last week, chapter 9, verse 9, we're looking at this man, Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch, uh, who says, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? That's the question. That's the question that that, uh, continues to resonate today. It's as valid today as it was back then. And it always will be the question until Jesus comes again and there's no more time to ask it. That is the uh, perilous thought. Uh, Everyone needs to ask it. And more importantly, they need not only to have an answer to it, they need to be certain about the answer they've received. So that is... Uh, basically what's going on uh, as we begin this. Now, where we left the disciples a week ago was going out on, a, on an internship, on a, on a, on a uh, sort of a practice run. Jesus had sent the disciples out two by two, according to Mark, in order to do a lot of things, preach the kingdom, heal the sick. Uh, he, Jesus gave them power over demons Uh, power to cure diseases, did all these uh, sorts of things. And today they're going in for a debrief. That's what, uh, where we find them in verse 10. Uh, We'll read very quickly through verse 17. Again, very, very familiar story. On their return, verse 10 of chapter nine, the apostles told him all they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away and the 12 came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions. For we are here in a desolate place. 
But he, Jesus, said to these disciples, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. Well, there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Okay, <clears throat> verse 10. The 12 apostles have come back. And remember, they don't have cell phones or any of those kinds of things. So they haven't, these groups of two have not talked among themselves until now. And they are undoubtedly all full of stories and events and experiences and doubts and questions and uh exclamations and accolades and a lot of other things. So they're back in verse 10 and they tell Jesus about some of these experiences. And Jesus says, okay, it's time to get, uh, let's, let's go off to the side here and really uh, unpack all of these things. So he goes to a town called Bethsaida. Why would he go to Bethsaida? Well, last week we looked at the division of uh, what we would call Israel or Palestine, whatever you wish to call it, among the clan of Herod. Herod the Great has died and he's left his three sons. Bethsaida is right up here on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee in Philip's territory. So Jesus has gotten away from this guy Antipas who bragged in our uh, lesson we saw last week, Antipas, Antipas excuse me, has already chopped the head off of John the Baptist. So now he's interested in Jesus. And as we saw last week a little bit, by the time uh, we get to the end of Luke and Jesus is in Jerusalem with Pontius Pilate, we're going to run into this guy again and he's not going to be a beneficial friend. Uh, so they go to Bethsaida, which is in Philip's territory. And Philip uh, is nowhere in the story. So this is somewhat neutral ground, in other words. Uh, interestingly enough, the hometown of three of the 12 apostles, Peter, Andrew, and, um, oh my goodness, Philip. Uh, that's in John 1, verse 44. What's the purpose? A little R&R, a little big debrief. They're probably tired, exhausted. They need a break. They need to swap all of these stories. But in verse 11, something happens to throw a monkey wrench into all of this. Crowds had learned about this. You remember when Jesus and the disciples are over east of the Sea of Galilee and they're dealing with the demoniac and the people there say, leave us. And they get in boats, they go back to the west side of the Sea of Galilee and they were met by crowds. Jesus from this point forward will never be away from crowds. Uh, who want to find out about uh, this, uh, this thing going on and who this person is. Uh, they're asking the same questions that Antipas was asking. If you look at Mark chapter 6, verse 33, you will see that some of these crowds got to Bethsaida before Jesus and the apostles did by running around the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, again, not in Luke, but in another gospel, uh, Jesus and the disciples apparently got in a boat to go to Bethsaida. That's the easiest way to get away from people uh, is go out on a body of water someplace and at least 
uh, you're away from whoever was on the shore. But that didn't help in this case because the people ran around the northern end and got there ahead of them. What's Jesus going to do? He's got a very important task in front of him, debriefing these disciples. He's training these men. They've now been with him for more than a year. And they've seen him do a lot of things, but he's still training them to the point that, that he's going to have to release them. He knows what's going to happen. He knows that two years from that point, he's going to go to a cross and then he's going to be lifted into heaven and leave it all to these 12 men. They don't know that. So this is an important time for Jesus to be with them and an important mission that he has uh, to uh, to thoroughly discuss and vet what went on. So what's he going to do with all this crowd? Well, he welcomes them. And I'm sure uh, a lot of the uh, disciples and apostles were irate over that. Uh, they wanted the time as well as he did. They needed the time as, as well as Jesus would have wanted them uh, to be able to unload. Uh, but he welcomes them and it says he preached the gospel in verse 11. He preached the, or the kingdom of God and he healed the sick, everybody who was there. Why would he do that? Well, if you go to Mark chapter six, verse 34, Mark says, because they were quote, like sheep without a shepherd. And it's the uh, same verse in Mark chapter six, Jesus quote, had compassion on them. So this is something that Jesus never ever leaves behind. Now, just before that passage in that same chapter of Mark, it says the disciples were weary and in need of rest. Now, up to this point in just two verses in, we've already looked at three different gospels. We looked at John and Mark and, and here in Luke, of course. This is the only miracle that is discussed in all four of the gospels. The only one, the feeding of the 5,000, other than the resurrection. I don't... Well, we can argue about that one, but uh, this one is unique. And that is another flag that should go up. There's, there's, a lot, there's a lot to consider here. There's a reason that the Holy Spirit would put this particular event into every single one of the gospel accounts. So they're all going to give you a little bit of a, of a broader picture, of a more insightful picture of what's going on. Also, Jesus, as we saw last week, is about to leave the Galilee region. At the end of, of chapter nine, Jesus is heading down toward Jerusalem and his ministry is he's going to take a circuitous route to get there, but he's not going to be around Galilee anymore. So this is the last great miracle that the people around the Galilee region are going to see from, uh, from Jesus. So you have a powerful witness, among other things, so far to the compassion of Jesus. He's never going to turn people away. He will never turn you away or me away. Uh, don't ever get it uh, in, in your head that, that Jesus is, uh, is off on another mission or he's doing something that he's not listening. Compassion is something that Jesus is, is uh, never, ever going to be void of. Uh, so we can go to Jesus anytime, physical needs, spiritual needs, any need. Uh, Jesus is there and listening and compassionately listening. Now, when you move on to verse 12, a problem. Jesus apparently 
uh, preaches and teaches and heals. He's doing this all day long and the sun is getting lower and lower. The disciples are probably getting increasingly irate, irritated. They're tired, they're hungry, they're exhausted. And they're wondering now, what are we gonna do? We're up here on a, on a barren part of the, of the Sea of Galilee. It's pretty barren around most of the parts up there. Uh, logistical concerns are a problem. <coughs> How are they going to get any food up there? So the 12 disciples in verse 12, they come to Jesus. And in a, in a, it's hard to know from the Greek how to take this, they, but it borders on impertinence. They're suggesting to Jesus or telling Jesus to send the crowd away. Now they're trying to couch it in a positive light. They, these people need to eat Jesus. So send them away. We can't feed them. There's nothing around here to feed them. The only way we could possibly do that is if we go try to buy food for them. Jesus sees this problem, not surprisingly, as an opportunity to teach his disciples something very, very special. Now, remember, they've been, uh, they've been with Jesus more than a year. They've seen Jesus do miracles. They have never, ever seen Jesus encounter a problem that he didn't solve on the spot. But for whatever reason, they didn't think this one would be. Uh, they're dull of hearing and observing, in other words, and I would suggest uh, we're probably in the same boat. I'll just speak about myself. I am in the same boat. Uh, these men have seen Jesus do everything from raise people from the dead to calm a storm on the middle of that same Sea of Galilee that they're standing by. But here the people need to eat and they, they're not even thinking along those lines. Verse 13, here's how Jesus responds to their uh, suggestion. You give them something to eat. Now I say it that way because in the Greek there is huge emphasis put on the pronoun. Uh, Jesus is saying, no, no, you give them something to eat. So a test, a command, their readiness for ministry. They've just been doing that for whatever period of time they were out on their, uh, their mission going from village to village. Here's how the disciples responded there in verse 13. We had no more than five fishes and two, and, or five loaves and two fish unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. After all, verse 14, there's 5,000 men alone. That doesn't even add the number of women and children. That's a large crowd to try to feed. John chapter six, verse seven, Philip chimes in this way. 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough. One denarius is one laborer's full day's wage. In other words, Philip is saying, there's no way we remember they were sent off almost with nothing. When Jesus sent them at the end of, of that opening nine verses there, Jesus said, don't take anything with you. Let the people provide your needs for you. So they don't have anything with them. And Philip is bringing up the fact that it, even if they, we did, it would take more than we've done. Andrew, John chapter six, verses eight and nine says this, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Verse 14 again. This is an important 
statement to remember. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is where Paul is dealing with his thorn in the flesh. Here's what that verse says. But he said to me, this is Paul speaking about Jesus. He, Jesus, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. So Paul is, uh, is now Paul, of course, is down the road. Paul, is, we, Paul knows about the crucifixion and the resurrection and the uh, Pentecost delivery of the Holy Spirit and all these other things. These disciples are, are they're, they're neophytes at best at this point. Uh, they've just stuck their first toes in the water of personal ministry, and I'm sure some of them are still bleeding from that experience. Uh, goodness, I remember the day at Westminster Seminary when, when first, it was a lot of fun sitting there reading and, and listening to wonderful uh, men who, who were scholars for decades upon decades and reading all these books and going to the library. You could just feel the, the it just felt really, really good. But then the day came when you had a preaching class and you had to get up and preach. And uh, it was, uh, I found it a bit artificial because everybody knew they were, your fellow students were sitting in the seats because they were told to be there. And it was hilarious, by the way, when you start in seminary, the, the opening sermons the first year, everybody is Billy Graham. <laughs> and everybody, you, you know that you're the next Billy Graham. You just need to get through this. Get, give me the diploma, get out, and I'm Billy Graham. Uh, I never had that, that thought, but, but uh, I knew a lot of people who did. But more importantly, the, the, the students sitting there listening thought they were Billy Graham. So at the end of each of these little student sermons, you're critiqued by your colleagues. And in the, in the first year, you're just ripped limb from limb. I remember a guy who I had my Bible in a, in a, in a case, in a, in a little leather thing. And he said, how do I know you're reading from the Bible? I can't even see the word Bible. And I thought, my aching back. Can we get a little bit, a little? Anyway, these disciples, these disciples, by the way, by the third year, you can preach the worst. It can be a debacle and everybody falls over and says, that's the best thing. I've never, I've got to get my grandmother to listen to it. But uh, at any rate, it's uh, what these disciples are, are going through at this point. They haven't learned what Paul instructs each of us, but what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 is very important for all of us to understand that especially when we are weak, especially in those, those troughs and those valleys when it's either physical issues or spiritual issues, that is when in particular the compassion of Jesus is there to draw upon. Uh, now in verse 15, uh, everybody does it. Jesus says, divide them up into, into groups of 50. There are a lot of commentators that, that make a, a lot of it out of, to, I don't see really any, I think it just made it easier, logistically easier to, to feed and control the crowd and so forth. Uh, by the way, let me just, uh, it isn't just Paul. Paul is not part of these 12. Uh, so the, to the question of whether these 12 ever learned this lesson, I would just uh, uh, draw your attention to the third chapter of Acts. Acts chapter three opens this way. Now, Peter and John, both of whom were there, 
were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried. And they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. These are different men after Pentecost, after three years, after failing. It's another lesson that we each need. We're, Jesus is not looking for perfection. He's not looking for, uh, for uh, you and I to come through with every single event in our lives and handle it like mature Christians. Uh, Peter and John are sitting there at the temple weak, and here is, here is this man asking for alms, and they say, we don't have but we've got the one thing you need and that's Jesus Christ. That's what's going through this event we're reading about. Verses 16 and 17. Jesus taking the five loaves and two fish looked to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke. Now that verb that's used there that's translated broke in, in the English Bibles is a continuous action. It's, it's, it's saying that he keeps breaking. He's breaking and breaking and breaking. It's as if the more he's breaking the bread, the more abundance of bread is here. He keeps uh, breaking the loaves and, and gave them to the, the disciples to distribute to the crowd. And that's also interesting. You notice, you may be picking up the parallels of, of the Lord's table uh, where the elders come forward uh, a prayer is spoken and then the elements are given to the elders to give. Uh, <clears throat> here Jesus is not uh, simply doing this without them. He's letting them participate. As he breaks the bread, he gives it to the disciples. The disciples fan out uh, to distribute everything. Uh, and they all ate and they were satisfied and there were 12 baskets of bread left. Some people suggest one basket for each of these hungry apostles, disciples. Uh, again, I need to be careful making too much of that. But nonetheless, the point is, at the end of it all, after feeding more than 5,000 people, there's more food there than there was to begin with. So this is clearly talking about the abundance of grace that comes and is available from Jesus. So again, when, when you and I are in our, our periods of need, uh, not that we're ever not in them, but to when they we're in significant need, there is nothing, there is no problem, even though to us it will look insurmountable. Uh, to Jesus, it does not, and it never will. There is an abundance of grace. Interestingly enough, only in the Gospel of John does it, uh, is there a, a description of the crowd's response to this miracle. And not surprisingly, uh, they say, boy, this, this guy must, this guy, Jesus must be a prophet, the prophet. And they immediately move to make him king, which is precisely the mistake uh, that, <coughs> that the Israelites will make throughout Jesus's ministry. And therefore he gets with his disciples and they leave. Now, <clears throat> a few summary insights and lessons uh, that are important to take from all of this. 
Uh, first of all, by this point, we've seen Jesus uh, do quite a bit of, of uh, things, dramatic things, uh, here in, in this Gospel of Luke. He's been Lord over nature, over sin, over life, over death, now indeed uh, Lord of all of creation. Uh, leads you to another Pauline statement, and that's in the book of Colossians very famous uh, portion of the book of Colossians from chapter one, uh, verse 15 to 20 reads this way. Paul is talking to the Colossians about the preeminence of Christ. He said, he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That, that, that's a very, very comprehensive description of who Jesus is that is being played out for these disciples to see these disciples um, just beginning uh, their walk with, with Jesus. Now, the supreme sufficiency of Christ which has capped this Galilean ministry performed outside the city of Bethsaida, took them out of harm's way, out of Antipas's pathway. But uh, Matthew chapter 11, again, just as the area of the Decapolis, Matthew chapter 11, verse 21 and 22 Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Many of these people, perhaps most of them, were residents in and around Bethsaida who saw this, but apparently... Uh, certainly wasn't a large number. I assumed that, that there were uh, those who the Lord brought to saving knowledge of himself in this event, but apparently most did not. Bethsaida, this, this, uh, this town is going to be, and, and in fact, if you visit this uh, area today, all you will see, uh, you can still see crumbled rocks that form various walls within this town. Both Chorazin and Bethsaida today in Israel are, you, if you didn't walk, oh, it's looking like looking for a golf ball in the leaves. Uh, you won't find it unless you happen to walk exactly over the top of it and somebody moves the leaf aside. That's the only way you will find any residue from this town, a town in which Jesus performed this miracle. <clears throat> Now, here is uh, what I think, frankly, is the most important uh, aspect, and this is where it's most easily missed because of the familiarity of this passage and this miracle. 
this miracle and every miracle that Jesus performs are not simply teaching moralisms. Uh, there, are, there are a lot of, of places, uh, maybe even some churches in America today who, if they were ever to get to this passage, uh, would deduce from it that we need a soup kitchen in the church. Obviously, we are called to feed the hungry. <coughs> Nothing wrong with that as far as it goes, but it doesn't go very far. That is not what this is about. Uh, generous uh, as Jesus is, and certainly more than we can deserve, uh, Jesus can meet our physical needs, true, as far as it goes, but think about that. Uh, that response to this miracle is precisely what the TV evangelists are all about. Uh, Jesus is so gracious, he's there, he's just waiting for you to tell him what you need, and, and trust me, I'll be the conduit. So you just send me a check, and I'll guarantee you, maybe I'll send you a vial of holy water or something. Uh, that is not, all of those kinds of, of uh, reasonings from this miracle completely miss the point. So what is the point? What is, what is the connection that this, this miracle makes? I'll, let's start in the Garden of Eden. That's where it begins. That's where this miracle evolves from. We're going all the way back to Genesis 1 the opening of the Garden of Eden and the creation of mankind. God has provided for Adam and Eve everything they need. They don't have, <clears throat> have a thing. It's just like uh, these disciples who were sitting there wondering, well, we don't have anything. I have what? <clears throat> you don't need anything because you've got God walking in the garden with you and he's giving them every single thing they need. He just gives them one caveat, which they, of course, disobey because of, of listening to Satan. And they sin. At that point, the question is, what is God going to do? He is, he is, it would be perfectly logical if he said, well, this was a bad idea. I shouldn't, these people are not listening to me. Uh, they're toast. I'm out of here. I'll forget this earth. Forget humanity. He doesn't do that. More grace comes pouring forth from him, and he establishes a covenant of grace with Adam and Eve. And... Um, mainly because man can no longer provide for himself. And that story is going to move from that point forward. It's with us today. It's, it's no different. Now, from that uh, beginning, that covenant of, of grace, a, a term that will cover uh, all of the covenants of, uh, of uh, Scripture, uh, we'll go to Abraham, jumping forward to the 22nd chapter of, of uh Genesis, it, again, a very familiar, poignant passage, insight into the story of Abraham. Genesis 22 is when, you know the story, Abraham and Sarah, uh, God has promised Abraham covenantally, uh, chapters 12, 15, and so uh, in Genesis, through you, we're going to bless the world, basically. Through you, Look up in the sky. The offspring are going to be, well, Abraham and Sarah sitting there looking at each other. Hey, wait a minute. We're, we're a bit long in the tooth for childbearing. Uh, how in the world is this going to happen? Just like the disciples are sitting there by the Sea of Galilee thinking, how in the world are you going to feed all this? Well, it's God you're talking to is the short answer. So in, in chapter 22, after 
Sarah and Abraham have miraculously been, uh, been given this, this son, Isaac. God then says, now I want you to take Isaac and kill him. I want you to sacrifice him to me. That's pretty, uh, pretty interesting logic. And, but, but here's what Abraham, that 22nd chapter, the sacrifice of Isaac, a very poignant story. I'll just pick up a few verses beginning in verse 10. Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. He's got his, his, his hand raised over his son Isaac with a knife in it. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. That's exactly what has happened in Luke chapter nine. The Lord will provide, the Lord has provided. It begins with this covenantal faithfulness, moving to Moses. Think about what happens in the life of Moses. They're, they're in Egypt for 400 years as slaves, but God sends this man, Moses, a murderer, someone who you would think would not be up to this task, uh, but uh, a murderer forgiven and uh, filled with the grace of God. And he sends Moses to bring, to bring them out, to lead them out of bondage in Egypt. And he gets to the final of all of these um, curses against Pharaoh in Egypt, the Passover lamb. Again, the blood of the lamb on the lintel, on the doorpost of the homes of the Israelites, the faithful Israelites who placed it there. God provides. They get out of Egypt. He provides a pillar of cloud during the day, a pillar of fire at night. He provides manna in the desert, in the wilderness to feed them. He provides water out of a rock. All of this is in Luke chapter nine. Let's go to Joshua. Baton passes from Moses to Joshua. He's entered the promised land. Joshua uh, chapter five, verses 13 to 15. I'm not gonna stop to read them, but you know it. That's the passage about Joshua meeting the commander, uh, the angel, uh, Jesus. Most uh, everybody agrees. This is Jesus he's talking to. And God is going to uh, continue this, uh, this meeting with, with this man, Joshua. Joshua is going to go out and reiterate the covenant of grace again. He's going to go to Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and he's going to read the blessings from Gerizim and the curses from Ebal. And he's going to say, be faithful to this covenant because through the covenant, God provides for you. Let's go on the, through the story of Gideon. Gideon has 32,000 troops. And God says, Gideon, I want you to lead and we're going to conquer these, these really mean people. And Gideon uh, says, oh, well, Gillis, I guess we can maybe do that. God says, well, I want you to trim down your army. And he keeps going down and down until there's only 300 people. And Gideon, just like the disciples in Luke chapter 9, is saying, that's not enough. We can't feed these people. We can't defeat that army with 300 people. You can because the Lord will provide. It's going to Samson. It gets down to one. Samson alone in the temple. Again, not the paradigm leader you would expect. 
gets the job done. Go to David. What does he do with David? Little David is a teenager or whatever. goes out and there's a giant named Goliath. And the whole army of Israel is quaking in their boots because of this one guy. And this little teenager comes up with a slingshot and says, Hey, I'm in the Lord. What are you, what's, what's your people's problem? End of Goliath. Why? Because the Lord provides. And he provides David victory after victory after victory all through. Again, not a paradigm person, an adulterer, a murderer. Go to Isaiah. Go through the prophets. The Lord provides the suffering servant. Go to Jeremiah. What's the Lord provide there? The new covenant. There's going to be a new covenant coming that's going to give life to people. It follows with uh, the 30 in Ezekiel. You get the, the chapter 36 with the, I'm going to give you new hearts. So I'm going to provide you with a new heart. I'm going to take that heart of stone out, put in a heart of flesh, and it's going to enable you. I will blow my spirit on these dry bones and they will come to life and live. Next chapter in Ezekiel. That's what's behind Luke chapter 9. Is there some sense in which a food kitchen would be nice? Sure. Tangentially, yeah, we're, we're, we can follow that. We are to feed uh, those in need in an appropriate manner. <clears throat> but what we tend to do so often is put on these bracelets, these WWJD bracelets. What would Jesus do? As if Jesus here in Luke chapter 9 has shown us an example to follow. As far as that goes, it's true. I have no problem with that. But that's so tangential to the heart of this. It's much, much bigger than that. Jesus isn't this example that I can emulate, although I try my best to do so. He is unique. He is the son of God, that Colossians passage again. Does Jesus meet our physical needs? Does he feed us when we're hungry upon occasion? But suppose he doesn't. Does that mean I fall away in unbelief? Is he obligated? Of course not. What is all of this getting back to? Oddly enough, Herod Antipas still gives us the paradigm question. Who is this man? That's what this story in Luke chapter nine is. He's the provider, capital P, spiritually most importantly. Here's John chapter six, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. That's the passage in John that follows this miracle in John. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's not talking about physical hunger, physical thirsting. Matthew 4, verse 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 4. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. So you see what this simple miracle, so familiar, perhaps overly familiar. This is, this is not, God is the provider, the covenantal faithfulness of God that has provided and will provide forever for every need that you and I have in the way that God knows is best for us that it be met. It may not be our wishes. It may not be our desire. It may not be in our timing. All of those things are utterly irrelevant 
Like Paul, we wait and realize that precisely in our weak points, in our weakest points, God is moving and Jesus is there. That's, uh, I want to close with uh, just these wonderful, wonderful prayers. I call them from the book of Revelation. So we started in Genesis. We're going to go all the way to the end. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, uh, we do uh, so often get to these uh, apparently simple and very, very familiar events in the life of Jesus and these gospel accounts uh, help us not to just see through them and past them or draw the wrong simplistic, moralistic conclusions from them. Father, there is something so incredibly weighty here because it answers the question on everybody's lips. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. Jesus is the son. Jesus is the savior. Jesus is the provider. Father, humble us before you. Help us not to complain, but like Paul, realize that you've given each of us thorns to bear. And precisely when those thorns drag us the lowest, whether physically, spiritually, whatever, that is when you are with us and you will indeed carry us across this finish line. Thank you for the great provider. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.